Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Aging. I'm Diane Atwood. For the past year, I've been traveling around my home state of Maine, interviewing people 60 and older about their lives and what it's like to be getting older. Maine is tied with Florida for having the oldest population in the nation. And that means there is a lot of wisdom here and wonderful stories to be told. Take today's episode, for instance. My guest is in her early 80s and runs two businesses, one of them helping families navigate the world of dementia and the other helping people navigate a journey to her beloved home country. Where's that? Well, I'll let her tell you. My name is Anne Quinlan. I am a native of Ireland. I've lived in the United States for many years and all of my children are first-generation Irish. Well, you haven't lived in the United States for so long that you lost your brogue because it's no, still I there. No, no. I think you need to get off the plane in Galway or in uh, Dublin with me, and then you'll really hear my Irish accent. Yes. So it has faded a teeny well, little bit. Well, I mean, I think it's but also, I'm, it, there's so many accents in Ireland, and people expect an accent, but there's so many different um, colloquial forms of speaking in Ireland. Like Dublin, I always, well, we are told it's the best spoken English, King's English in the world because they speak phonetically. You go down into the more rural country areas and they speak faster and they tend to speak within the context of the, the original language sometimes, which would be the Irish language itself. Like you go into parts of Dingle and there are native Irish speakers there. They, they understand English, but they would prefer to speak Irish. And you'll find that uh, primarily among the fishing people, the people who are still doing the traditional ways of making a living. Well, where did you come from in Ireland? I was born uh, about seven miles, I always say, from the United Kingdom. I was born in the Republic of Ireland, seven miles from the UK border. Okay, so you're going to have to explain that for people who don't know. What do you mean by the Republic? Ireland has 32 counties. Uh, we were occupied. We had many occupiers, primarily the British, over a period of four to 500 years. Um, we were invaded by everybody except the Romans. They didn't make it to Ireland because I think they were too busy um, across the pond building the Hadrian Wall. But however, we, um, as, a, as a land of people, we go back to prehistoric times. We know that because of all of the geology and the, the physiology of the land itself. But the Republic of Ireland, when Ireland was divided, when they had the partition and England kept those six counties, very famous now because of Brexit. So those six counties um, are in the upper, if you look at the, if anybody's familiar with the map of Ireland, it's like a dog standing on its hind legs mm -hmm. and where the ear is, the large ear is, those are the six counties tucked into the north region, I mean physical region of the land mass of Ireland. And called Northern it's, Ireland? It's, call, it's called Northern Ireland or the six counties or the north as they call it up there. The north. <laughs> And so where on the dog were you born? So the ear, the ear of the dog. So the dog is standing, so if you're looking at the map of Ireland, um, you know, vertically, just imagine vertically, that the dog has sort of got its paws off to the west and its hind down at the bottom on the southeast. And then the southwest would be Kerry, Killarney, those mm -hmm. regions. But that little ear at the top is that region of the six counties. And what brought you to the United States? Well, um, I met a man. <laughs> um, my former husband was doing his graduate work in medicine in Boston. 
And uh, so that's, uh, and we met over a summer. He was back on holiday or visiting family. And, um, and then I ended up coming to Boston, and that's where we raised our family. So he was from Ireland from as Ireland well. From Ireland also, yeah. Did his, graduate, did his undergrad work in Ireland, universities, um, College Cork, actually, University of Medicine there, and then came over and did his graduate work in the Boston area. Well, actually, he started doing his work originally in Pennsylvania and did um, some internships there and then became a resident um, in internal medicine in, and opened a practice in internal medicine in Boston. And you have a nursing background, don't you? Well, I started out in nursing school in England, and what would have been equivalent in those days, I mean, I was very young. I went at 17 right out of boarding school, so it was like going back into boarding school. Um, to Leicester, my mother had family there. I had an aunt there. So I did what would have been considered now like almost like an LPN course, but I never did anything with that here. I went back to Ireland and did other things, kind of, uh, I worked with the National Blood Bank in Dublin, but it was mostly PR and marketing. So that seemed to be my calling at that time. At that time, but mm. then you married a man who married, became a physician, yeah. and did you help was, him in the practice? Well, yes, I helped, build, helped him build the practice. I mean, I had ch children very quickly. I had four children under, under the age of six, mm -hmm. so my life was very busy <laughs> with babies. But yes, a lot of our building of that practice would have been, as I mentioned to you earlier before we began recording, um, would have been making house calls and visiting. And I think that was a time in my life when I realized we were both from Ireland. So my children had no cousins here. We had no family here. So essentially those older patients uh, became kind of grandparents for my children. What decade or what year are we talking well, about that you would make the house? 60s and 70s and 80s. 60s, yes. 70s, and yes. 80s. Yes. It, yes. You were making house calls house with your calls, husband. Yeah, yeah. Around and taking Boston. the kids with you? And taking the kids. Especially on a Sunday, like we would get them all done, you know, they would all be dressed up for mass or whatever. Uh, and we would then just line them up into the car and go off and make house calls. And especially times like the holidays and Christmas, just going and visiting. I think there were some um, patients that. Even my children continued to visit after they were in college. I, re I just remember one gentleman, I think his, I can't remember his first name. I want to say Mr. Gilbert, but he lived to be well into his 90s. And so the ch he knew the children and they would still go visit. So that was something they did, continued to do with their dad, you know, even after we had separated and divorced. Wow. I would like to go back to when you were a child yes. for a little bit. Yes, of course. So you were born and lived your entire childhood in Ireland. And, yes. uh, and what yes. was that like? And was it a culture shock when you did come to Very the United much so. States? Very much so. I had a. It's interesting. I, I'm the youngest of five children. My parents were. Um, my mother was one of eleven. My dad was basically an only child, and so he landed in this large, loving family. Um, the powers of Dundalk, County Louth, and uh, and my um, my dad basically had. In fact, he his work really he worked ended up working for the government. He was a regional director for what they call customs and excise back then, and that was part of the reason we were on a border town for a period because all of the excise products came in by train when I was a child. So everything was by train. Then there were the war years. So everything was affected by the war. I mean, people know that Ireland was, we were neutral, you know, uh, but again, we were very much affected by the, by the Second World War. 
So this was mid early 40s? Well, yeah, the 40s and and going e even into the 50s. We had ration books. So things, I mean, basic products that we would ne would never have been short of, like flour, sugar, things like that, which was probably in a in in a way it was a good thing. I didn't have sugar probably till the 50s. I don't even even things like sweets and sugars. And so we used a lot of honey and syrups and things like that. And we always had we always had an orchard with fresh fruit. So um, there was a lot of good, what I would call kind of home cooking, but very basic. And so my dad on weekends went with friends and they went hunting. So we ate rabbit. We ate a lot of perch and lake fish and things of that nature which didn't do us any harm, no. you know. And you had gardens? And we had gardens, and my mother raised chickens during the war. Everybody did back then. And I'm going to assume that she was a stay-at-home mother. She was the stay-at-home mother, very, very um, amazing, actually. I look back now, and I'm, as I'm getting older, and I now I'm a grandmother, I appreciate her. She was what I would call she was almost a medicine woman. She used a lot of natural products. Um, we very rarely ended up going to the doctor unless it was for stitches or something, fall off a bike or things like that. But she had a knowledge, um, she studied nutrition and she had ways, she was also very involved with the Irish Red Cross, which was very active during the war. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, she did a lot with training and because we were still um, at risk of invasion, you know, by Germany. Um, I remember as a small child being carried uh, out of my crib and brought out into the garden because there was a blackout and the Germans were flying over our area because they were, they were trying, doing their best to bomb Belfast because Belfast was not that far. It was just about 55, 60 miles from where we were living. So even though it was that distance away, you were still in danger of yes, some sort. Yes, we were. And, uh, but I do remember being, uh, and I, I'm going to say, I don't, I mean, I might have been three or four or five, those ages, but I do remember the war. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad had a big map with um, pins where we, he marked where, where Hitler was, you know, the fall of Poland, Warsaw. So we saw a lot of that. And again, what I do remember about, th this was later on, probably... We moved then to County Meath. We moved closer to Dublin. So I was about nine then. And that was a tough move for me because I was leaving friends and I was leaving, you know, just what had been familiar to me for the first nine years of my life. And we lived at the edge of a thousand acre forest, so which was pretty amazing. That was our playground. Hmm. So Why did you move? Well, because of my dad's work. You know, again, he was moving. The war was over. This would have been the late, late 40s. We moved um, up to his office. Then was located at the Custom House in Drogheda, which is one of the uh, was one of uh, it was a seaport, a river. The Boyne River came in through there, mm -hmm. so the a lot of the excise goods and things that would have involved his work would have been there. And then we we lived. We had a wonderful house. We lived out in Dulic County Meath, and we lived and it was four acres of land and trees. It was heaven. And uh, so, I mean, that part of it worked out really well for me. But I went to school for the first, I went to a little day school for the first probably four years after we moved there. And then I went to boarding school. Now, why boarding school? Is that just what happened A lot over of there? children did. And I think being the youngest of five, I, maybe, my, maybe my mother was tired of raising kids. <laughs> I don't know. 
Who knows? You never it asked was, her. Well, it, it was a good experience. It, it, I was homesick, but I wasn't that far from home. I mean, they would come and visit on the weekends. They would hop in the car and come over. And so, but I got a wonderful education. I got a wonderful, in Ireland, and I say this to people again and again, I got an incredible classical education. Now, what do you mean so, by a classical education? The boys education. got Greek. We got French and music. And so the classical education would have been more focused on the arts. And so for that, I'm eternally grateful. Because you're an artistic soul, I think. Well, I, just yes. looking around here. Yes, and also just the joy of writing and poetry and all of those things that were very big in my home as well. I mean, we had, that's what we did. We read and we listened to radio. I think they just, um, they were very involved in theater. Um, I'll show you a picture before you leave of okay. the big theater group that my dad, that's how my dad met my mom, was through theater. They Commun both were in the theater? Community theater, yeah, community theater. And, uh, yeah, he did, he wrote some plays, you know, just short plays that he produced and directed. He directed me in a couple of plays when I was older. But, um, so theater was a big part of our lives, theater and music, I would say. My dad really wanted me to go on and study at the Conservatory of Music in Dublin because I studied music. That was the big piece of what I did do mm -hmm. in boarding school. I started studying piano when I was about nine or ten. And then I continued doing that, and then I took up cello. I had a wonderful cello teacher, too. She was a nun, mm -hmm. and the fun thing about her, Sister Frances, she, uh, she was a great cellist, and she would, we'd go down into the music room, and she had to pin her veil behind her head so she could get the, <laughs> the arm of the cello up over her shoulder. So we had some laughs together, but she was wonderful. They were really kind. I have no memory of... Um, harshness in any way so I, I landed in a really nice school and it was and I made close friends I, I actually brought my younger children back to visit many many years ago and um, my art teacher was still she was still there uh, so yeah again it was it was a change but I adjusted and I think it taught me something about becoming independent you know, how, how things like that do. They sort of change mm -hmm. you in a way. So when I went home as still the youngest of the family and when we gathered with cousins and friends and everything, um, I, I always felt um, not apart. It's, that's not, that's, that was not, I didn't feel apart from them, but I felt a little bit different because I was away. And none of your siblings went away? My older, my brother Michael, who's actually gone to his maker some years ago, um, he, was, he was the second oldest of the family, and he did his final year in high school. He, he did do boarding school. I think he came home on weekends, but it was a boys' school, obviously, an all-boys school. Different school. Yeah. Yeah. So after you graduated from secondary school, and then you Thinner. went to England. Well, and yeah, that was, I mean, I, I'd been home for probably for the whole summer, obviously, mm -hmm. and then I started off. In, uh, it's interesting that I applied to nursing school in Belfast, and but um, my dad said let's just let's just experiment with this because a lot of people don't understand that even though I was admitted to nursing school in England as a Catholic, I could not be admitted to a nursing school in the six counties of the North because I was Catholic. Oh, so one of their requirements on there was to, you had to put down your religion. And I remember filling out that application. I think it was probably for Queens or something. I don't remember the nursing school, one of the nursing schools in Belfast. And, uh, and so the question was, what was my religion? So I checked off Catholic. And, uh, and obviously I was turned down. You were immediately disqualified. Yeah, disqualified. Mm -hmm. But ironically, 
I could go to the British Isles and go no, to Nursing. It doesn't make sense. Make no to sense. Me, no. no. But that was the that was the and and I think people now observing or watching Brexit and what's happening with those six counties. I, I personally in my lifetime, I maybe not in my lifetime, but certainly in my children's lifetime and grandchildren's, Ireland will be united again. It's it's bubbling up now and a lot of the younger generation They've been crossing that border for 21 mm -hmm. years with no customs. So they've discovered family in, in uh, the other, in the Republic, and they've gotten to know younger people. They've socialized in the Republic of Ireland. All those things that would have been verboten, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, when, I mean, when it was really intense during, especially what they call the Troubles. But people forget, I mean, the greatest book ever written um, was written by a Jewish writer, um, which is Trinity, uh, written by you know, Leon Uris. Leon Uris. And I think this is an interesting thing about the Irish, um, that so much oppression over time, you mm -hmm. know, of um, the occupation, the gentry came in, they took over our land, all of those things, that before the Elizabethan period, you know, we had lands, we had laws of equality, we had the Brehan laws. I could do a whole, we could do a whole conversation on that. Mm -hmm. um, but the Brehan laws existed, and the, the Brits, the English, the Elizabethans tried to assimilate some of those laws when they first landed, when they became the landed gentry. Prior to that, of course, we had the Anglo-Norman invasion, we had the Norman invasions, we had all these people plundering and taking over land. But it's a small island, you know, it was easy to get to. Can you easily trace your genealogy? Um, well, uh, my genealogy, interestingly enough, um, I did my DNA several years ago. I was on the board of the Maine Irish Heritage Center here, and somebody said, why are you doing your DNA? You're 100% Irish. And I said, nobody's 100% yes. anything. Well, guess what? I'm 7% Asian. And what about your children? Your, your children, you said, were first generation. The first generation American, yeah. But how invested are they in their family history? Well, it's interesting. I think they're more so as they get older, and now that they have children, they're more interested. Um, so they've been to Ireland over and over again. They have, obviously, dual nationality, um, so they have dual citizenship, mm -hmm. and so do their children. So that stops at the third generation. But that began uh, after the, I believe, after the 100th anniversary, I want to say the 100th anniversary of the famine. Do you know what's really interesting, Diane? I grew up in Ireland, uh, was educated in Ireland, um, you know, voracious readers. I mean, that's all we did. My parents were voracious readers. I mean, we lived at the library. We had book clubs that book came every month. We fought over who got to read it first. But it's interesting to me that not one unit in either primary, um, grammar school, or secondary school, not one unit did I have on the famine. And why do you suppose that is? Because they don't want people to remember well, it? I think it was, I think if you look at the period, it was still very close to what happened to grandparents and great-grandparents. I think it was close and it was painful. Maybe. Right, so people couldn't bear to have to read about it or well, to it also, acknowledge it yeah, even. Maybe. And also, I think people who survived it had this a thing called survival guilt, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Um, that's a good Christian word, anyway. You know, if you if you want to go into that guilt place, but having shame around it. Shame is a much better word. The shame mm -hmm. around. Um, and again, I don't know. I, find, I couldn't could rarely get my mother to talk about that. My dad talked a little bit about it, but not. Not, you know, expansively in that way. I finally got my mother to talk about it. And the two families, the powers, which uh, would have come in with the 
with the Normans. That would have been Delapier. They were the French. Now, came in. this is your mother's, My mother's family. Thing. Her her job, her father. Okay. So her father, grandfather, great grandfather. Well, not so much her father, because obviously he was much. I mean, this would be more recent. But her grandfather, great grandfather, and possibly great great grandparents, mm -hmm. on the power side, they were they were coach builders. They knew how to build coaches for the mm -hmm. gentry. So they had, they 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 didn't go hungry. They hadn't. They were artisans. Then there was another side on the Russell side that were, and they were apparently stained glass makers. So they they were artisans. So anybody who had a craft like that would have been in demand. But no farmers would have been. Well, the farmer. Oh yeah, the farmers. That's the farmers lost their land. That's where the tenant pharmacy came. The whole farmer um, tenancy thing came in. That's where the famine really hit badly. And it affected your family. Yeah. And again, I don't know all of the history mm -hmm. of the other side, but the point was that they, when they, when they came and demanded, took the land, the farmland, which was the the richer farmland that became valuable to these invaders, mm -hmm. basically, um, then those people got to stay in their, on their land, but they then had to pay had as to tenants. Pay. They had to pay rent to the people who stole their land. Uh, an age-old story, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. It is. It's, and, and, and it's always been so. So now I want to have a little bit of fun. I want yeah. you to um, dispel any myths or stories <laughs> about mm -hmm. Ireland. Like mm -hmm. You were telling me when I first came into your apartment mm -hmm that about uh, four-leaf clovers? No, what was that? Oh, no, oh, no, no. you were telling me when I arrived about shamrocks. Yes, yeah. That it's really well, the harp. You, you noticed my harp. My This is a small Celtic harp. Yeah, the harp really is the symbol of Ireland. And you have to go back to the famous Brian Boru, Battle of Clontarf, you know, and the last great high king of Ireland. And he always brought his harp with him to battle. So, but the harp goes back centuries in Ireland. So that really is the emblem. And the bards would take the harp with them mm -hmm. and they would go from place to place and they would play the music, sort of like the story. So the harp, the music would accompany the storytellers or they would tell a story okay. or they would sing a song. So that became kind of the fireside instrument or the community instrument. And so it has, I don't have a lot of knowledge about the origin, the actual origin or how early this appeared, but I'm going to say pretty early on, um, probably even when the monks first came, sixth century, maybe even before then. You know so much about Ireland, not just mm -hmm. because that's where you're from, but you also lead trips to Ireland yes. and have been doing that for what, decades? 19, 1988, I started doing this. Well, what happened was when um, we were raising my children in, in Massachusetts, um, people would come to me and say, we're going to Ireland, and, um, you know, where should we go? Well, my first question I was, and still is, why do you want to go to Ireland? And everybody has a different answer. Well, my great-grandparents were there. I've always wanted to go. It looks beautiful. I'm interested in the history. I studied Irish history. You know, there's a million reasons why people want to go. But I think that part of the attraction for me in doing this and developing it over time is that, and it's interesting, my parents... Um, were very um, committed to our seeing Ireland before we went anywhere else. They really felt it important for us to know our own people, our own geography, our own history, um, right down to megalithic. And um, when we moved to County Meath, we moved literally seven miles from Newgrange. I don't know if you know about Newgrange, but that's the solar, the oldest, one of the oldest solar observatories in the world. So it predates the pyramids. And that's a huge tourist attraction for people. 
Um, but so I think knowing knowing one's own country uh, is important. So you've been leading these journeys. Yes. And you're. You have a business called yes. Spiral Journeys. Where yes. does the spiral come well, from? Well, the spiral journey, if you look at the little triple spiral there, mm -hmm. that is the spiral that was discovered inside Newgrange. Um, and that's the triple spiral. It, it's not just endemic, I think, to the Celtic, to the early Celts or whoever they were, those early people um, who probably came on an ice floor or something. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's a symbol of birth, life, and death. So the journeys, mm -hmm. your spiral journeys, mm -hmm. people sign up, you take a group of how many people, a couple well, of times a year do you take well, groups I, over? I would, I would like to do more than twice a year, but I have a group now going in the spring, in May of 2020. Ten is a great number for me, and the hidden Ireland piece of this are these restored mansions and manor houses that be, have become these private, I mean they're private, they're not really hotels, but they're beautiful places on land where um, we can stay and then we go off every day after breakfast we go off so I have a I, and I have vendors I work with I have an archaeologist I work with over there so I people go I, we go off to a different area every day or a different site every day so is Hidden Ireland one of the tours that you take well, people it, on or is it, the, is it the tour well I consider Hidden Ireland the pieces of Ireland that you don't see on a regular tour I think I, I, it, I use it in that context as well, because a lot of times if you go with a large group, which is fine, people go, they're in a different bed every night or every other night. We just stay in, we, I, I usually, generally, the very most three bases, but usually two over a period of 12 days. I think it's almost a stupid question to ask mm -hmm. you, what do you love about Ireland? I don't think there's anything you don't love about Ireland. No, there really isn't. Um, I. I I, I'm sort of reignited each time. I, I tend to be ignited when I talk about it, as you probably have <laughs> gathered. You're 81 years old now, and you are still leading these journeys, which must take its toll on anybody of any age to yeah. put this all together and then gotta, to be over gotta there. you got to stay in shape. you got to get up and walk every day. got to get up and move every day. Which uh, you do. got to get up and talk every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's interesting because I, I, I think I'm very fortunate. I've inherited really good you know genes I'm sure you know that's a big part of it um, but I also I'm committed and com I'm very passionate about what I do whether it's in the aging end of things I see I see the um, the ocean for want of a better word of fear around aging and I it's not that I fight that I just embrace my own aging and I feel that if we don't do that it's just another stage of life we come in we live and we leave. Just like I, the spiral. Just like the spiral, exactly. And I feel that if we're, if we're, if we have all this anxiety, and, and it's, it's promoted in our culture, it's promoted, you know, it's all about, um, you know, pretending that you're not aging, like getting fixed so you don't look your age. What does that mean? Well, I've talked to enough people now who are in their 90s. Yes. And they will tell me about how good things were up until mm -hmm. a certain age. And yeah. then they started noticing things. Mm -hmm. And um, so what I have come away with is this notion that you have to do what you can while you can. Yes. And then um, you, you, you kind of like every morning you get up and you, you assess things. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you also have to use it. Yeah. 
or you're more apt to lose it more quickly. Right. And that includes mind, body, Absolutely. spirit, everything. everything. I'm also a certified Reiki master, so I do. Um, I believe in the in the work of energy healing mm -hmm. as well, and uh, and I can do it on myself. You know, I'm very I'm very careful in my walking and like getting in and out of the tub and the shower. I've got bars here. I mean, so there are things that one does that that really are common sense. Um, it's not that I'm invincible in any way, you know. I'm obviously an older person, um, but I but I'm committed to a, a good quality of life, and that's one of the reasons I moved here too. You're now in yes. a senior community. Well, I mean, it's really uh, 55 plus. I'm a lot older than 55. Most of us in here are actually. I've tried to stay in touch with other ages. I believe that if we isolate into a certain we categorize ourselves into a certain aging process and we're not around all ages then mm -hmm. we're missing out because what are we doing if we're not passing on some wisdom some you know when I sit with the grands with the, the little grandkids or whatever we're doing I'm telling stories I'm talking about because they want to know and I wanted to know at that age so what did you do when you were blah 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 you know your life is being enriched and their lives are being enriched yeah. as well. Yeah, and we're missing out on that because we don't, we create communities that don't involve intergenerational, um, they're not exposed. And I think the wisdom um, of the elder is, uh, it's, it's, come, it's quote coming back, it's mm -hmm. becoming more in vogue. And I think an elder going into a community where there are children, you know, I work so, you know, so I don't have a lot of time to volunteer. I've done a lot of volunteer work in my time, but I, I still give blood been doing that my whole life um, but I but I think the value of um, well all I can offer is the value of my own life experience beyond that you know uh, I see that as as having as being a kind of treasure that that I carry within me mm -hmm. and that's what the treasure of memory and long-term memory is really what we have and for people losing memory um, being able to tap into long-term memory is extremely valuable you alluded to working in the aging yeah. field, yes. so yeah. you don't just plan these incredible journeys to yeah. Ireland. Yeah. You have a totally different yeah. Yeah. business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I began. Um, I started uh, my company, Healthy Aging Matters, probably around 2000. I'm going to say 2001. I coach families um, who are managing someone with cognitive decline. But I, but more importantly, and what I've begun to do more and more is, I'm really a navigator. I understand the health system. It, which has become so challenging and confusing. Just the language of healthcare, the whole lexicon and, you know, around that is confusing. How do families find you? Referral. Well, so here you are. Mm -hmm. You are very, very active. Mm -hmm. But what about your own thoughts on aging? You've told us a little bit. Do you have concerns? Do you have plans? Do you have... Yeah, I mean, I, I concerns, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, obviously in life we ha I have concerns, you know. Um, but I'm, I don't feel alone. That's important. I don't feel alone or isolated. And I think that is isolation really is, I think that's a big promo promoter of mortality. And so I don't isolate. I, I love my solitude and I relish that. Um, I'm big on nature. I mean, the, na the natural world for me is my church. Mm -hmm. I'm not involved with a church community, but I do go, I go over to Audubon, I go, this brings me back to my early childhood. And I think it's interesting that the land, again, go back to that land experience, 
that the land really um, is very healing. And we know more and more now about the healing forest experience and all of that. But I always knew that. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, I have wonderful children. You know, I, I reach out to them. They sometimes say, so what's your plan, Mom? And I say, well, I'm, I'm now living in a community. So that was a plan that worked out really well. And, uh, but again, I, I feel um, I don't look down the road that much in terms of what would it look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that probably sounds somewhat... I'm not. I'm not avoid. I'm not avoiding that whole conversation. But it's not something but that you. I don't dwell Wake on up it. and think. Okay, gee, ten years from now, I wonder what my life will be yeah. like. I don't dwell on it. I don't. I don't dwell. What's the point? The reason I started doing this podcast is because mm. I went to a conference about um, loneliness. Yes. So, in your line of work, mm-hmm. do you see a lot of loneliness? I see loneliness as something that does not get revealed if the family is around. They don't acknowledge the loneliness. So very often when I'm with that person, I'm talking about the elder, Mm -hmm. without other people around. They will acknowledge that. How do they acknowledge it to you? It's, um, well, people don't call me anymore, you know, especially if they have memory issues. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I see people around people with cognitive decline, the kindest thing you can do is ring the doorbell. You know, listen to that person. Bring something that you know is familiar to them. Bring something that was their favorite. If you've been a friend all those years, what are you afraid of? That they're not going to recognize you? So you become a new person every day. You know, I'm your new friend. Back to you. Yes. (laughs) This is lovely. I'm enjoying it. Oh, I'm glad. Me too. And I've learned so much about the history of Ireland. Yes, well, there's more. (laughs) It's a very old country. I'll have to go on a trip. <laughs> it's older than dirt. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to come on a trip. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I will. Mm-hmm. I always ask people this, mm-hmm. no matter how young they are on yeah. the aging yeah. spectrum, yeah. what makes it a good day for you? What makes it a good day? Well, I must say that um, as I get older, when the sun is shining, is really a good day. Um, I'm, I'm a morning person. Mm-hmm. I, I was born at 310 in the morning. I don't always get up at 310 in the morning. <laughs> to celebrate but your birth. No, <laughs> no, but I'm very rarely um, asleep after 5 in the morning, so I get up early. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the mornings. I love the mornings. So making it a good day for me is getting up, you know, on a, on a bright sunny morning, taking a walk. You know, once the light comes up, I don't walk in the dark. I don't think that's smart at my age. Um, I even, I mean, who wants to carry a flashlight and walk around in the dark, you know, at five o'clock in the morning? But I'd say that for uh, what makes a good day for me, um, I'm very passionate about what I do with my work. So continuing to design these trips, responding to people, and also working with the aging process, communicating with families. But also seeing my grandchildren, Hmm. you know. How many do you have? I have six. Two here, two in Massachusetts. Well, Olivia now is in college. She'll be 20 in, can't believe she'll be 20 in March. And two in, in Brooklyn, New York. So I don't see them a lot, but we're all on the East Coast, so which is nice. And, you know, I Skype. I, I talk to Ireland quite a lot. Right now I'm organizing two other groups, so I'm talking to Ireland a lot. And I have WhatsApp, so I have a sister in Canada. We talk on the phone. Um, what a reading, poetry, um, writing. I enjoy writing. You're very, very busy. Well, I try not to be busy. I try to be productive. Okay. That There's a difference, yes, because There's if you're diff- busy, you're just like looking yeah. for things to right. do. Right. So I'm older, so I need to be productive. 
for with whatever time I have left. That's an interesting yeah. statement. Yeah, you know, I've done I've done a lot of in depth, um, you know, workshops and different things, spiritual experiences and stuff, retreats, and I Ramdas is a good old friend of mine, and I've certainly I still listen to him sometimes. I think humor. If if we can really laugh at ourselves and not take things so seriously, I learned something. It's interesting. I have a wonderful, wonderful friend, Betty Budlong. She was a, she was a V&A nurse in Boston. Extraordinary woman. Um, raised a family, and we just had this lovely friendship. And I, when I was doing this work, and she was still involved in her career nursing, but but then as she got older, she and she was never ill. She loved to go dancing. She was a belly. She'd been a belly dancer. She was an amazing human being. She was a lot of fun. And I remember one of the things, one of her phrases was, whenever something would come up like a crisis or somebody would be, she'd say, well, you know, we're all just passing through and this is our turn. So if I think about it that way, then what can I do? This is my shift, so to speak. It's my shift on the planet. So what can I do? I can't fix all of what is going on out there. What I can do is do something small every day that can make a difference, whether it's a small donation or whether marching, which I do. I'm political in that sense. I'm an activist in that way. Um, you know, if there's a march for climate or there's a march for poverty, whatever that is, I will go. I'm out there. So um, so I'm one of those grandmothers that, that hopefully, you know, my children and grandchildren coming along, you know, recognize that that's who I am. We're just all passing through. Yeah. Right. But when I'm gone, does my light go out? You know, or is there some little glimmer left behind? And so when you're when you breathe when your last yeah, breath. Yeah, yeah. Um I want music. I want like the birds singing in my ears. That's what I did when I had my hips replaced. I had my I did them with my earbuds in and I had bird songs. <laughs> Is there the voices of my children and grandchildren <laughs> and bird songs. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll give you the last word. Yes. Uh, I'm sure there are things that you wished oh. I'd asked you. No, 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 I have no, there's no right or wrong. So we're all set? We're all set. And thank you so much. It was lovely. It was lovely. You got some editing to been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Anne Quinlan, born and raised in Ireland, and now at 81, living a busy life in Falmouth, Maine. If you enjoyed my conversation with Anne, please share it with a friend. You'll find more episodes on my blog, Catching Health, at catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by Avida of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. Many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. And a thank you to the Center for Excellence in Aging and Health at the University of New England for their wisdom.